HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Andrea Shu, CEO and co-founder of Umami Cart, an online one-stop shop with Asian cuisine lovers at the very center. Umami Cart has two missions, helping customers seamlessly access an expansive selection of delicious products across Asian cuisines, and secondly, providing a new digital window for mom-and-pop immigrant-led businesses to reach consumers and have the space to tell their story. Umami Cart offers same-day delivery for New York City customers, as well as next-day delivery to 11 other states across the country. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me, Ellie. So excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited you're here. I, I was telling you right before the show, you know, I mentioned that I was interviewing you to a few people and they were all like, oh my gosh, you know, like, that's so cool. <laughs> that's such a, it's so cool. Like people are really excited about this business. And um, I have to say, like reading all about it, it, it seems like anytime you're taking two things that aren't necessarily able to connect easily, but really want to connect with each other and building a connection. Um, it's, it's just really fun to, to watch and witness. So um, I, I want to hear all about it. Thanks so much for saying that. Yeah, a lot of what we focus on is around connection. So I'm really happy to hear that that was kind of your takeaway. And I, I must say, we're still such a young company. So whenever we hear compliments of someone talking about Umami Card, it's still a very out-of-body experience. Like it just gave me goosebumps when you were telling me earlier. No, I know. It's like the first time you see your product on the shelf or, you know, someone, one founder I was interviewing, I don't remember who it was a couple of years ago, said that they knew they made it when they saw one of their cans in the garbage. 
<laughs> like <laughs> if someone had like actually bought their can of whatever had it and then like tossed it and they were like they took a picture yes. and they're like this is the first time I'm seeing my package in the trash like this means that I hit the big time but it is true you know it never gets old I think that that's partly why we continue to do these things and build these things because it's exhausting um but there is this reward of you know willing something into the world that makes people mm-hmm. happy you know Definitely. so tell me about it I want to hear all about how it started you know what there must have been like a aha moment or two um so yeah. maybe just a little bit about you and how you kind of came to being the perfect founder for this great company so a lot of umami card has been very full circle for me um it's very much a inspires her by my own experiences. Um, I'm a third culture kid. So I was born in Spain to Chinese immigrant parents. My parents immigrated from China to Spain when in their early 20s. And I was born there. I grew up there. Um, mm-hmm. I came to the US for college. So I was still really young and I've been here for most of my adult life. Um, and so I think like many individuals with multicultural backgrounds, my story jumps around a lot of different geographies, um, mm-hmm. but food and cooking at home um, has always been a huge part of how I've connected to my identity, to my parents' culture. And it's also been a huge sort of like love language in my household. Um, and I think it, yeah. that's a, a very much a, a shared love language in many Asian households. So mm-hmm. I think that was sort of the source for my appreciation for food. And then I think growing up in Spain, being able to access these foods was, was, it, it was very hard. It was not. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I often ask, you know, founders who have these, these deep connections to food, usually it was the love language in their family, either that, or they wanted it to be like, there's some story back there mm-hmm. about, about food and nurturing and all of that. And I mean, I guess, how were you eating? What were you eating as a kid in Spain, for the most part? What, you know, how, what were your days like? My parents were really busy entrepreneurs. Um, Mm -hmm. They started their careers in the restaurant business. So they worked for Mm -hmm. Chinese restaurants and then eventually built their own. Um, And I just remember so distinctly this idea of having a second menu that, was really for family meals and for friends and things like mm-hmm. that. And we would all gather and have these things that we wouldn't necessarily share with all of our guests. And while that was so awesome to kind of be in the inside of it, it also made me really confused of mm-hmm. why are these foods not something that we're able to just share with all of our guests? Like, why why are we not proud of these dishes that right. look like nowadays ugly delicious is, is obviously something celebrated, but but that was a source. Um, and then I was eating all kinds of Chinese food, but we were also eating amazing Spanish food. And right. it was that mix that I related to a lot that I didn't see anywhere else, like in none of my mm-hmm. friends' places. Um, and that's a little bit of what we try to do at Umami Card as well. And that's yeah. why we have so many different cuisines that we encourage people to mix and match. Right. And it's what, again, I mean, I think the the underlying theme to everything here is like you're connecting cuisines, you're connecting generations you're connecting real life with digital you know you're just like connecting 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 and that's probably to some extent because that's you were you know in this um almost kind of like 
confusing identity position mm-hmm. as a kid. Like that I I have a lot of friends who kind of were never quite in this thing, but they were never quite of that thing either. And so those, you know, in my experience, those people end up being the ones who really want to build community. Exactly. No, I think that yeah. feeling you're mentioning of not being exactly in this thing, not being in another is so confusing at an early age. Um, yeah. And Umami Card is all about saying we're not fully this or fully that. And there isn't a way like one perfect box where you can fit Asian American identity, for example, mm-hmm. and Umami Card is allowed to exist with our personal curation, carrying the products that our team loves um, from founders that we look up to from mm-hmm. local stores that we think are awesome. And we, we, we don't want anyone to come and tell us, well, your selection is not complete because there's plenty right. of Italian stores or French stores that just carry whatever they love. Mm-hmm. And that's what, mm-hmm. that is part of the message that sometimes doesn't come across front and center, but the customers that really love us come to us because they, they love our selection. They trust our vetted products and right. they want to shop our staff picks and things like that. Very cool. So you came to, um, it, I, you went to NYU. I came so you to, came to New exactly. York and then you went to go get an MBA at a little known school called MIT. <laughs> what were you, were you thinking you wanted to be a banker or finance or what, what was the plan there? I'm ashamed to say that I was in finance before, <laughs> but no, that's okay. I, I came to, I've, I've um, rehab now into a foodie that is my real <laughs> calling, but I went to NYU and I just distinctly remember meeting so many Asian American friends. Um, It just wasn't something that it wasn't something that I was even like missing because it was so not in my radar. I was really used Mm -hmm. to being the only Asian person in the room. Like I was not accepted as Spanish, like not fully Chinese, like feeling both, et cetera. And then I came here and I was like, oh my goodness, like, you know, I am so proud of the community, Asian American community that is so proud of their own identity that doesn't fit in perfectly with one or the other. And it's just its own. But I also saw that still it was really hard to access these foods, um, even in the heart of New York City. And when you were able to, you know, go in person, you were lucky enough to be around Chinatown. That would be awesome. That was like something we love to do. But when you were away, the online experiences didn't speak to me, didn't speak to a lot of my friends and didn't solve for being able to access these foods in a way that is not just seamless and convenient, but also very enjoyable and connecting to that feeling of joy that that you are looking for when you're looking for these foods. So yeah, yeah, that's that everything that inspired what I wanted to do. Um, but I did. <laughs> I joined Goldman Sachs um, to start my career, and then at some point, I was still itching to build something in this area, and I went to MIT to study entrepreneurship. Um, Mm -hmm. that was my focus in my MBA. And that's when I started kind of thinking about umami card more, more, uh, deeply and like doing more interviews and really understanding the core of what the problem really was. Yeah. And I mean, I wanted to, you know, one of the things that I was reading was, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, I think my hunch is, I don't know the exact breakdown, but my hunch is that a lot of the people that listen to this show, haven't necessarily taken the plunge yet. Like there, I'm, my guess is there's some percentage of you guys listening that are still at your desk or 
at home doing your day job, but kind of dreaming about launching a product or launching a service. And you just, you know, you're just thinking about it. Um, and we talk a lot about that the research that you can do doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to go anywhere. There's a lot of just like, just stuff that you can gather. You just have to kind of know the questions that you're trying to ask and, and go in a little bit like with an open mind and just kind of noodling around. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, you were asking a lot of questions and you did interview a lot of people. And I'm really curious about the process there. Like, what, what did you think you were asking? What did you end up kind of getting out of that? And, and what did you kind of hear over and over and over again that made you feel like, okay, now I have the product or the service to answer that question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think your distinction of sort of like, what were you looking for versus what did you get is super important. Because yeah, sometimes you're so obsessed with an idea, you've thought about it hundreds yep. of hours, and you go kind of like straight in. And I was probably starting my research asking things around, what products are you looking for? Like, what kind of know. delivery service? Yeah, exactly. Right. And they, they, they only know what is currently available. And what yep. I realized is really, really, the purpose of the research is to get to know this person as a person and hear beyond the problem that you're solving. So I kind of yep. flipped it to not just not even just talk about food, but talk about their general um, preferences when it came to e-commerce. Like, how did they mm -hmm. shop in their regular lives? Like, how much of it was in person versus how much of it was actually through brands? How were they discovering these brands and why? And pulling that thread, I started to realize that a lot of our target customers were mostly short Asian American customers were mostly shopping um, online for a lot of their purchases. But mm -hmm. for, when it came to food, and even when it came to food and groceries, they were also shopping online um, at bigger rates than than average. But at the right. same time, when it came to Asian groceries, they would really naturally walk me through the routine of mm -hmm. how they would plan their weekend to go purchase this. Mm -hmm. So they would distinctly tell me, oh, you know, we'll like plan our Sunday morning around our Chinatown trip and like we go down and there's traffic, so we'll take a little longer or we'll <laughs> rent a car and we'll drive right. to New Jersey. And it was so natural. And while it was a really enjoyable part of their week, I could also sense the frustration that it came with. Right. That was the only option. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's really, I love this. And I want to just like nestle into this a little bit because I do feel like I've used the example of, you know, when we were asking our students at the cooking school, like, why, what would help you cook easier? A lot of them didn't have the answer. But when we were like, what stops you from cooking? Or why don't you cook more? Or, you know, when we asked it mm -hmm. like that way, we were able to kind of get, get to it a little bit better. Um, mm -hmm. and so like the, the right questions and asking, and you don't know what those questions are until you've talked to 20 people and almost exactly. just like conversationally. Right. I think it was the woman it was Jordan and she founded the women's health company. And I don't remember either her name, uh, Jordana. Anyway, I'll, I, I can reference it in the show notes, but basically she, they did the same thing. They just, they were like, let's just talk about everything about your period, everything. 
And then we're going to like build out some things from there. And they had no Mm -hmm. idea what they were getting into or what they were even going to ask. And they just started the conversation. And it sounds like you, you did that and then you honed in and then you honed in and then you honed in. Yeah. I can think of the exact parallel to sort of like our interview path, because as I was talking to these potential customers, I was like, oh, that sounds like an awesome weekend routine that your family has. What do you do during the week when you're not able to go? Um, What do you buy? Because fresh foods only last for a few days. Vegetables don't stay good the entire week, or sometimes they were Mm -hmm. doing two week trips. And they're like, well, I'll just go to my local grocery store and I'll just find the closest swap. So I'll swap Mm -hmm. out like this ingredient that it's actually really key for the dish for Mm -hmm. spinach. Like I'll swap out a Asian leafy green for spinach or I'll swap something out. And that made me so upset and sad because in the heart of New York City, because I remember our parents doing that when we were kids, Mm -hmm. um, because our closest trip was two hours ago and they were really busy entrepreneurs. And so it was more like a monthly thing that we would do. Right. I was like, in the heart of New York City, that's that's that shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't be swapping out the key ingredient um, and not even realizing that you're kind of like doing that. So it was it was a very similar parallel. Was it and at the same time, were you thinking and meanwhile, like if it rains, the mom and pop shop in Chinatown doesn't get that family who makes it their weekly trip to come down and stock up. Like, were you thinking about them already too? Like that other half of the mission where there are all these people with all this stuff that are eager for customers that are weather dependent and rent dependent on mood dependent and all of that. Like, and what year was this? So so this was in 20, this was right around kind of like the pandemic. So 2020. Right. Um, So so there's a lot of pandemic dependent. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I think the pandemic really hit um, Chinatown retail stores very disproportionately. um, And that was really painful to watch. A lot of the stores that I had grown up during my college years loving were struggling. And we saw so many kind of like outpour from our communities to support them. And yeah, it was really painful to see their inability to kind of adapt to e-commerce right away. And Mm -hmm. I think even before that, um, my parents after they built their their restaurants, they built retail businesses. And so I had actually grown up operating within a lot of our retail businesses. And mm-hmm. back to your point earlier on connecting generations, I yeah. had very firsthand witnessed the generational gap of sort of the way my parents built their business and mm-hmm. kind of the challenges they had connecting to a younger audience, yeah, you know, adapting to an online world and 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 all of those things and marketing in an online world and whatnot. So those parallels were the ones that really motivated me from the very beginning because I really felt I understood the pain point so well. I'd seen yeah. it happen with my parents' business and I could relate to them so much. And I felt like I could help them connect with this younger generation that is looking for something more multicultural. Yeah. It's so amazing. There's really, you know, there is this founder product fit and like, you just can't beat it. It's almost like you were the perfect person to build this, you know? I mean, I'm sure there there were other people who could have and other things you could have built, but it's like, there's a cap to every bottle, you know? Like it just, it fits so well. This was, it was so much fun to read about, you know? And I think that's partly why. And so 
did the idea that was in your head at the beginning end up being pretty close to the idea that you decided to launch with? And what was that launch like? I mean, you were you were about to build a tech platform, essentially. Um, how did that go? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I think the part that, well, let me sh- t- share a little bit sort of my, my um, road to that. So essentially after yeah. business school, I... I joined a VC firm as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. in residence where my main goal was to incubate an idea, like work on something that I wanted to build. And I had this umami card idea that was already like deeply seated within me. Um, at the same time, what I was supposed to build was like an asset light marketplace, similar to a model like Airbnb or something. And, mm-hmm. and I tried, I tried to focus my mind on ideas that, <laughs> that were like that. And I just kept going back to this and, I, I, again, like, I feel like I've seen firsthand in order to build something, the passion has to be there. And it's, there's going to be so many ups and downs that you're going to have to tap into that well of passion that goes beyond just wanting to build a company. Um, So to me, that was like the imperative that I knew if I didn't have that, there's no way I could go through what I had seen my parents go through in their journeys. Um, And so I just pitched really hard around a market that my investors hadn't spent probably zero time thinking about, honestly, they Mm -hmm. were like, Hmm, why can't you buy this at Whole Foods? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, so yeah. And, and I think that was like a very good training wheel for me because it was the first time like explaining the meaning of, of something like umami car to people that maybe had not spent any time thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when, I mean, was it, how many, how many, I guess, how many stores did you start with? Like, how did you even, what was day one like? What was, I mean, literally, what, what did you launch with? Day one, um, we launched with, I think, a handful of suppliers, five, mm-hmm. five, maybe 10 suppliers max. We had been working with them for about six months before that, sort of like finding our space, building our site, uh, pitching to suppliers that were like, who are you? (laughs) We've never heard about you. I don't know if I want to sell to you. And it was a lot about telling the meaning of what we wanted to do um, and sharing our vision and what we wanted to build and getting that credibility um, that sometimes comes over time, especially when you're working with smaller mom and pop um, suppliers and and, and vendors. So a lot of it was that. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. Um, No, that was. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I mean, I guess I'm picturing like an arrow kind of coming into you from, you know, stores that have never been digitally, you know, awakened. Then are you also getting, are you, the brands drop ship or like, are they, are you, do you have inventory and you're putting those boxes together? Like you're, you're gathering from different places. Is yeah, that right? we gather Exactly. We gather from different places and we pack the boxes ourselves. Um, So our team packs the boxes and frankly, like I packed the first many, many boxes (laughs) with my team. Um, And that was really important for us because a lot of what we heard in these interviews was, was how important it was for them in order to be able to trust a delivery service that, Mm -hmm. you know, they just didn't know if they could trust how well it was packed, how well things that were picked into yeah. your box, whether someone had quality checked them. So we made that top of mind. Um, and if we were going to become someone's like regular grocery place to avoid 
their swaps, then we had to be really high quality and reliable. So we took that right. in-house. Um, we coordinated with the brands that we onboarded in the beginning to get their products into our space. We had to essentially like build out our space really quickly in the middle of the pandemic. Right. And we launched with not a ton of products, but a selection that we were really thoughtful about. And we launched with um, Chinese and Japanese cuisines first. So those were the only two that were available on our site. And now we right. have Korean as well. And we also have um, Southeast Asian cuisine. So Thai, Filipino, Vietnamese. And then how do you handle the produce? Like that, that part is wild to me. Like, yeah, um, you it's really have, hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. We have refrigeration in our site and we also get produce daily directly from um, the farmers that we work with. And right. these sources of produce are amazing. And I, I always like to mention, I read an article, I think it was on the Wall Street Journal or New York Times while I was at NYU. And it was like, why are Chinatown produce prices so cheap? And right. it talked about the skepticism around Chinatown produce and how that was so unwarranted because the reason why things were so cheap were because there were there was a much shorter supply chain mm -hmm. and the produce that you were getting was actually much closer to the source, right. like many, many steps less. So we were able to build relationships with a lot of the suppliers of fresh produce um, right off the bat, and we've been growing with them. Um, and we get our produce daily and we make sure to, you know, it's so important for the produce part to be really, right. really high quality and fresh. And we have a high focus on adding organic options. And we work with things like vertically grown Asian vegetables, um, pesticide free Asian vegetables and things like that. So cool. Okay, we're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about all sorts of other things. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Andrea Shu, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Umami Cart. So getting it up and running, you know, what would you say were like the big shock and learn hard and fast things that happened early on? You know, what surprised you? What was like a big lesson? Like, whoop, not going to make that mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think 
the thought that we put behind our platform, like building a really seamless, easy to use platform was amazing. Um, right off the bat, like so many customers could relate to that. And then on the flip side of that is like some of the things that we built that were incredibly beautiful caused so many issues, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> caused so many issues for on the tech side. And, and that part was, was definitely a learning and something that, you know, we immediately built our own tech team. And now we have an in-house tech team that continues to improve the product as we grow. And that way the digital product evolves as the company evolves. But right. yeah, like for, I remember sending out kind of like an, and the second one I was going to say is the, like the excitement around having customers and then the mm-hmm. flip side of suddenly having too many customers yeah. to serve with the team that you have. Yeah. That was like an amazing feeling. But at the same time, we mm-hmm. were like, what are we going to do? I know, you um, know, I got really good advice once. I don't know if I've talked about it on the show at all. I mean, I just realized it's been three years. So probably I have at some point, <laughs> maybe no one's listened, but it's, you know, and you can hear New York City in the background right now. But, um, you know, it's, it's, um, whether it's you're selling directly to a consumer or in our case, you're selling to the Whole Foods or the UNFIs or whoever it is, like a very early on, like our second purchase order came in way earlier for like four times the amount that I expected it to. And I, wow. Like I do when I'm frustrated and I'm proud to admit it, I just started crying. <laughs> like I was just like, there's no way we can do this. I've made a terrible mistake. I've I've told Whole Foods and Fresh Direct that I am able to do this and I'm not. And someone basically sat me down and was like, listen, you remember supply and demand? Like, remember that concept from college? And I'm like, I failed econ freshman year. You know, and he's like, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's, you don't, he's like, you're, you might have a, a minute where your supply and your demand match up to each other, but for the rest of your business life, there will be a mismatch. And the whole mm-hmm. key is when you have too much supply, figuring out how to like handle that. And when you have too much demand, figuring out how to handle that, just mitigating both things because there's no forecast ever that's going to, you know, the chances of it being perfectly accurate. And, you know, meanwhile, everyone's like, well, that's a great problem to have. Like, and it, and it is at the end of the day, a lovely problem to have that a lot of people want what you have on offer. But if you're a serious like person and you're heartfelt and you care, you feel awful not being able to meet that demand and not, and, and, and you feel like they're all going to go away and now you've set this thing up and it's gotten beyond you somehow. Mm-hmm. It's not a fun problem to have. So I totally get it. And also sounds like you figured it out. So <laughs> what, what did you have to do to get, to get to be I where you could? Yeah. I just, I completely relate to what you just share because I think with time now we've been running for about a year. Um, Mm -hmm. We've realized, yeah, that's supply and demand. It's really hard to match up. And for us, it's our customer growth versus our operations growth. And Mm -hmm. our operations growth is both our team and also our physical resources of space um, and and whatnot. So 
it's really hard to grow those hand in hand when forecast is just a forecast. And yeah. so I think to your point, we've just gotten more comfortable around, you know, having buffers around understanding that we're not, we're never going to get it hundred percent right. And being able to celebrate like the smaller wins, even when that happens, because I think that first time, Ellie, when that happened, I yeah. felt exactly like that. I felt like yeah. I chewed up more than I can, that mm-hmm. I can, I, yeah, that I can bite. And mm-hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't not feel bad about it. Um, and now it's just sort of more part of the operation, the day-to-day operation and, and the problem that we're set out to solve. But at that and time, think, yeah. we had to immediately ask for everyone to help pick and pack. We had mm-hmm. to call out all kinds, all of our suppliers to try to help us. And what we realized is one, the suppliers that had been working with us were so willing to help and put us in touch with some other suppliers that are now part of our supplier base, right, which was right. great. And Amazing. from our customer side, so many of our early customers had so much grace. So they they really encouraged us and 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 share a lot of advice around, you know, this is okay. Like you guys are a young company. And, and that was really right. awesome to see as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, there are two things that I feel like, you know, one is give them more credit than you think. Like people, if you are honest with people and you're like, hey, look, whether it's like your Whole Foods buyer, your target buyer, or like your direct to consumer customer, you know, this happened and it was like a whoops and I'm really sorry. And here's what we're going to do to make it right. That's the best you can do. I think people get themselves into trouble when they kind of try to put things under the rug or act like, no, this isn't a problem. This is your problem. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, there's, it's, um, you know, when you start yelling at people for wanting their thing delivered on time, that's not necessarily going to keep them coming. But when you're like, yeah, we totally messed up and didn't realize this many people were going to want it. We're going to be a month late. What can we do in the meantime? Um, I think that just goes a long way, you know, Totally. and I think that we're, you know, in this sort of founder obsessed culture that we're in, sometimes founders forget that a little bit and they get adversarial pretty quickly when really a consumer or customer that wants your product is just eager because they're excited, you know, and, and maybe they're not, they don't realize that, you know, their tone isn't great in customer service or, you know, they're tired and they like write a flippant email or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And some people are like legit trolly crazy, but I don't know. I mean, is your experience that people are generally more forgiving? I think, I think our customers are extremely forgiving and supportive. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do because of the way that we attracted them to Umami Card is around Mm -hmm like amazing feelings around food and celebrating our, our culture and, and these ingredients um, and really making people feel more seen because of their right. love of these foods. So there is that undertone to our customer base. Of course, as we grow, like it's, it's it like harder and harder. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It gets further away. And like our earliest customers are so ardently supportive and, and we pick up more and more of those along the way as well. But you grow as a company and you're going to get more complaints and more, issues as your orders grow. But overall, I totally agree with you. It's like, so important for us to as a company be extremely 
straightforward about what the issue was and what we're doing to solve it. I just don't see any other way because, you know, we're a small company and we're going to have a lot of bumps along the way. So a hundred percent agree. And we've seen customers react the best. And I would also say the second thing is also don't be afraid to, you know, to stand up for your team when, when Mm -hmm. it's needed to your point of some people are just pushing it a little far. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's okay to say, we're a small company, we're not Amazon, we're a few people, you know, really trying very hard. And we're really sorry, and we're going to do everything that we can to solve it. But also, this is like, don't be a jerk. Don't agree. Exactly. (laughs) So I think that's also okay. And to protect your team is so important and to not make them feel like anything the customer does to them, like they have to take. It's just acceptable. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. no, I totally agree. It's a really fine line. I mean, it's even you know, I was having a conversation with a woman who, you know, does our TikTok and people are just mean, you know, they, they haven't done their research. They, they, they say mean things and, you know, you get like, and I'm one of those people, I think a lot of founders are who like a hundred people could write amazing, amazing, amazing. And one Mm -hmm. is like, eh, (laughs) and like, I'm focused on the, eh, you know? Um, yeah, I think that's just maybe like a, a founder overlap on the Venn diagram, but she was saying a lot of what her job is, is like protecting people like me from reading the comments. She's like, you should (laughs) just don't go in there because the bigger that you get and the more, you know, you want this like virality to, to these TikToks, the more people who have no idea that you're not Amazon are, you know what I mean? Like they, they don't know who you are. They don't know what the company is. They don't know that you care about every single thing that you're doing and that you've thought about it and that everyone's working their asses off to make this thing happen. Like, so don't, don't read the comments, long story short, but I want to go back to something you said, because I do think, it, you know, we need to talk about sort of like, you know, I remember I had, um, Jing on from fly by Jing pretty, I think like smack dam in the middle of 2020, mm-hmm. you know, right when a lot of the very active, more blatant anti-AAPI racism was kind of flaring. And she made a good point, which, you know, was duly noted, like, this is not new racism. It's just more blatant racism, um, which I you know, I understand and I appreciated the nuance there. Um, but there has been more blatant racism against that community, uh, especially at the beginning of COVID. And I'm just, it sounds to me like there was there was a coming together of sorts around food and culture that impacted your business positively. And I'm just wondering how it impacted the business and your decision-making in other ways as well. And if you've, if you feel like there's a, is it one of the, I don't know, influence points or does it, it -hmm. exists side by side, but does it also exist sort of in a causal way with you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks so much for bringing this up. I think I, I mean, I think it's just been really, really hard for the entire community and yeah. Uh, suffering it at firsthand. And also I think as founders building companies that are so related to the cultural aspect um, through food or, or 
or other companies that are related to the cultural aspect, the API community, it sort of makes it extremely emotional to have to run your business and at the same time um, emotionally deal with it. So I I agree with Jing that it's just more blatant racism and not just anything new. Um, yeah. I think it's really like we, we talked a lot about when we started Umami Car, it was in 2020 and our week one, we were so excited about celebrating these foods, making people feel, feel seen for these foods, like talking about childhood memories and things like that. And, you know, I think week two, um, it was probably the height of, um, some of the aggressions and violence against the API community. So it was extremely hard to be in the center of that. And yeah, and kind of have to like face that front and center. At the same time, I think it's really important for us to like encourage our customers that and our followers that follow us to also like take up as much space as they feel they can, but not add this entire huge burden onto their daily lives of like right. becoming daily activists as well, because that can take right. a huge toll on yeah. their mental health. And that's what we notice a lot is like so many of our customers were writing in messages of support and also sharing how hard they they were impacted by this. Yeah, no, I mean it's and it it's not something that you were probably thinking about when you were mapping things out, you know, in business school. Like this, this it exactly. seems like there's this whole other thing then and now you become almost, you know, there's you become like an emotional support for your community, which is, you know, it, it, I think it's part of a brand's like every, every business wants to solve a problem. Right. And for the most part, building brands, we want to be there for our communities. And now more than ever brands act as almost these like in lieu of churches and, you know, the, the town square or whatever, you know, I don't know what used to be like, you know, we're, we, be, people build these communities around products. And, and to some extent we, we foster that with all of our social and, you know, you know, and that's a whole other thing while you're trying to get up an app that gets, you know, food delivered to people. And in the middle of a pandemic, that's hard. It's a lot. Um, yeah, I know. I was going to say, like, I, I just feel so proud of our community for having gone through such a challenging time, not just only the, you know, like disproportionate hurt that we had from COVID to the heightened racism. And it's been just a hell of a year for, for many people, but the Asian American community, um, has been really badly hurt and the responses that we see from the leaders in the community, um, founders and whatnot, I feel so privileged to be able to, to join the conversation through Umami Card and spread awareness. And I think the point I was making earlier was around Umami Card was still born to celebrate things and to Mm -hmm. make you feel seen for something really positive. And so while we, we absolutely like share make sure that we're sharing resources, spreading awareness, speaking up as much as we can through panels that we can join in larger companies. For example, I think that's an amazing place where I'm able to kind of like spread the awareness, um, universities and things like that. I think it's also important that when we're 
talking to our user base, we're also bringing them that break of the day of, you know, talking about something that's extremely happy and around cooking and something that is joyful. Exactly. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. So speaking of, you know, talking to people and reaching people, you've, you've grown a lot. I mean, I had, I did not know you were in 11 States. That's a lot. Um, And I guess part of the question, you know, is at the beginning, like all businesses, it's, you don't really have to do a lot of reaching out because you have this sort of built-in group of people that you know are excited and that are supportive. And then like you were talking about with, you know, me being scared of TikTok, as, <laughs> as it gets bigger, you definitely have to do more, hey, here's who we are, here's what we are. So how, how have you found, what's been the most effective way for you? Is it just straight up you know, targeted Instagram ads? Is it a particular channel that resonates, you know, with a particular consumer? Like, what have you learned, I guess? Has there been any surprises in terms of marketing channels for you? Yeah, so I think for us, we definitely do our fair share of paid media. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also like grew really strongly initially, thanks to the word of mouth and all the organic spreading of Umami Cart. And then we continue to do a lot of partnerships with brands that we feel aligned with, um, content creators that we feel really aligned with. And we have a a lot of efforts around content creation, um, whether it's recipes or lists or things like that, that people really enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I love the kits. (laughs) Like for someone who, you know, I, I don't have experience cooking any authentic Asian food, but there would be there were like things in there that I was like, that would be just a fun experience for me to do with my family. Like, I think putting it together in a way, you know, it's almost like you have, you have the customers who just know what they want and they come in and they sort of spearfish. I know I need this. I know I need that. This is what Mm -hmm. I want to make my meal the way I like making it. And that's great. But it also seems like you're in a position to expose a lot of people to, you know, a whole new cuisine and break it down so it doesn't feel as overwhelming and complicated and, you know, give people the confidence to try new things to, I mean, is that, I would imagine that's part of it too. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because we always talk about making, we always talk about how the, a lot of the products we carry are already known and loved by many of our customers, but they're oftentimes Mm -hmm not as celebrated or not as accessible. Um, So a lot of what we do is try to make them more inviting and accessible and easier to cook with. Um, So our kids, they're meant, they're meant exactly for that. And they're meant to make your special occasion a little bit easier to plan. And, you know, there's always the moment of which came up a lot during our interviews of, I really want to make this dish for my friends that are coming and I'm missing this one spice Mm -hmm. or this one ingredient that I don't have and I cannot get it in my local store. And now I find myself going to three different stores and whatnot. So Mm -hmm. it's being able to give you that all bundled up in one and so that you can enjoy this recipe, this easy recipe um, all together. And that's really successful with our customers, whether it's for inspiration or to shop the entire thing right away um, for occasions like what you're saying of cooking with family, hosting friends and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, and then on the flip side now, so we, now I'm going back to sort of like 
the other piece of the connection is these mom and pops, right? Like the, are you, are they, how, how, what, what surprised you about that? And how, how does that work from, how is that working in contrast to like what you thought was going to happen? Like, are you able to go into a store and like digitally connect a store that otherwise would not be, you know, are like, is that what you're doing for them? Or is it more like, curating special yep. things from them like how how is that working for them because I think that part's really 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 cool too you know like you're giving yeah. these stores this whole other sales channel that just didn't exist yeah we're definitely we're we have a lot of a few specifically stores that relied mostly on foot traffic Mm -hmm. um, that are now able to reach 11 states through us, which is really mm -hmm. awesome for so them and a, and a really good way to diversify. And what we initially thought, which is partly true, is that a lot of our job was going to be meeting them where they are in their technology mm -hmm. and building to their needs. And so, you know, it was never going to be part of the equation to just ask them to follow exactly the uh, same processes that we follow or plug into our tools, we were right. going to have to meet them where, where they were, which, which has been true and has been something that the team has done such an awesome job about of, you know, adapting to where they are, understanding their needs, understanding their pain points. Right. The part that has surprised me is how much we're involved also in the product creation. So mm -hmm. the product itself, the food itself is one part of the product, but as you know, in, in CPG, the mm -hmm. other part is highly packaging, is mm -hmm. being able to package it in a way the product arrives really fresh and that it sustains its nutrients and that it, it's also appealing to a customer. Right. We've gotten very involved with, with um, select stores that, that we love to partner with and we really help them on that front. And then... Um, I've been really surprised by their openness to, to, you know, to like innovating in that front and like taking our advice and taking our suggestions and, and building together um, yeah. and making packaging improvements. I mean, I just, I'm like, I'm like, I'm kind of in love with the whole thing. I just think it's really cool. And I really appreciate that you took the time to come on. I have like two more questions because I know that Armin gave me a hard stop. So I want to be careful, but I just want you to know if I don't get to say it at the end, like, thank you so much for this hour. Cause I'm really psyched that we got to talk. And I think it's just a really great business that you're building. That said, what are the pain points now? Like what are, what, you know, not the, I hate the, what keeps you up at night question, but like, kind of <laughs> like what's, yeah, you know, what's occupying your mind now? Yeah. I think it's mainly, two things really like one is our scaling of operations. So we're moving into a space that's much larger than our current space in about mm -hmm. two weeks from now. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to be a whole new challenge. Our operations flow will change and it's super exciting for the team, but also like a really, really huge milestone for us as a company. Um, yeah. The second one is building a really amazing culture within our team and continuing yeah. to honor the values that we set out because I think in, a lot of our marketing um, and storytelling, like the core has to be based on values and principles and that's what people connect to yep. and making sure that, that that's harder. resonating yeah. exactly with everyone that's joining the team and that everyone is there, not only because they're super capable, but also because they are completely bought into the mission 
Um, yep. That's something that I focus more and more on. Um, yeah. And I really enjoy it, but it's definitely a huge challenge um, yeah. as well. A couple of weeks ago, I think I almost like started crying. I think I was trying like, cause the, the same thing kind of, I think, I think when you're growing, you know, it's like you have to let go of a certain amount of control at the beginning. Everyone is so team oriented and so mission aligned mm-hmm. and everyone knows what everyone else is doing, you know, mm-hmm. and then it gets bigger and you start to, you know, quote unquote, professionalize. And, and now everyone isn't necessarily, you know, a Swiss army knife, but people are in their own silos and how do they stay connected? And all these things are just like natural growing pains. In your case, you also have probably, I mean, I would imagine that it is not easy always finding just labor because you're also, you're looking for everyone from, you know, tech people, you know, to marketing people, to ops people, to people packing. Um, Yep. And that's, that's a big swath of, of human beings to try to find at a time like this. Is that hard right now? I would imagine. Yeah, it's definitely a hard labor market. And I think finding the people is like one challenge for sure. But then being able to retain the right people and Mm -hmm. like hire the right people, that's even Mm -hmm. a harder challenge. Once they're in the door, then nurturing the right culture. That's like an ongoing challenge. um, For sure. That is really, yeah, like really, really meaningful. But I think that's even harder of like, you know, once you you spend all this time hiring this one person, like, let's make sure they're super bought into the team. And like, that's my top priority almost of Hiring no, I mean, I had a, bought in, <laughs> even I if it takes a, a little longer. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and you know what, even then you just, you don't know. It's like, you know, when couples live together for 20 years and then they get married and then they get divorced six months later, you're like, <laughs> you kind of knew, yeah. didn't you? Like what happened there? <laughs> but I feel like, you know, in my case, I, I've made hires that I was thoughtful about and brought other people in and did all the right steps. And like, it just, it was like the body didn't accept the implant and the Mm -hmm. implant didn't want to be in the body. And it costs the business months. It costs time. It costs money. It costs me sadness. It costs the team, right? It's like, and so that made me nervous to hire the next time. You know, it's just, it's, there's, um, it's hard. I mean, there are a lot of amazing people out there. And I do think that different, different people resonate with different cultures. Um, and, you know, not everyone's going to resonate with mine and I guess not everyone's going to resonate with yours and people, you know, but it, it's definitely, I think it happens to be the same thing that kind of weighs on my brain too. I really don't want to make a hiring mistake, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but Someone gave me advice that was exactly that was like, even if you're the most thoughtful in your hiring, like you're probably going to get it wrong 50% of the time. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. just have to know that you didn't do, you might've done everything right. And that could happen. And I guess what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say is like hearing you, I feel so identified because I take it to heart too. And I might, I might think we made a mistake or what what could we have done? And sometimes like you said, it just, it wasn't the right fit and it wasn't the right fit. And, and you have to be able to continue pushing with your mission. Compartmentalize and move on on, just like everything else 
in this business. <laughs> um, Andrea, thank you so much again for coming on. Um, people can find you, your products, the kits. I'm personally, I would really like to do a roast duck. I've never done one and they, it's like been a thing of mine. <laughs> so um, I would like to come on and go to umamicart.com. Um, and what, if, do you want to just say the states or is there, it, what's the best yeah. thing? Should people just go on and see if, if you service them basically? Yeah. I think the easiest is if people go on and check their zip code, that's the easiest way to see if we deliver. Um, okay. we also have a mobile app that we launched. Amazing. On, so you can find us on the app store or Google play. Very cool. Very cool. Armin, as always, thank you for engineering. Thank you for, you know, making the time happen. Um, listeners, as always, thank you. I got so many nice messages after um, my 150th episode last week. And, um, you know, I just, I hope this is helpful. And I want you to know I love every minute of getting to meet these awesome people in this weird industry that we're in. <laughs> so um, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>